Thank you. Good morning, and thank you so much for your wonderfully warm welcome, Dr. Still, and it is good to be here with you in Waco today. And I bring you greetings from my family, obviously, but also from my home church, All Souls Church, Langham Place, back in central London, which is where I left yesterday and arrived last night. So here we are to think about these topics, which Dr. Still has just mentioned, and I hope that you picked up uh, the one of the, well, the two handouts, actually, that are there at the doors you came in. One is an outline of this first lecture. The other is a kind of accompanying handout uh, with six questions and on the back uh, a diagram and some very uh, select bibliography. So wisdom and mission, missional hermeneutics and Israel's wisdom literature. And just to say, as I was explaining to Dr. Still in his office a few minutes ago, for me this has been a bit of an exploration myself. Uh, I've thought about missional reading of scripture for quite a while, but not in relation to these particular books. So it was uh, quite a journey of, of discovery for me, and I hope at the end that you might think so too, and then I'll be interested to see what you think, whether we've hit on something here or not. Uh, and this morning then, Shaping Faith, a missional reading of Proverbs. Come, they said, in Jeremiah chapter 18, verse 18, come, they said, let's make plans against Jeremiah, for the teaching of the law by the priest will not cease, nor will counsel from the wise, nor the word from the prophets. So come, let's attack him with our tongues and pay no attention to anything he says. In other words, one less prophet won't make any difference, they thought. But in that verse, Jeremiah 18, verse 18, this malicious intent of Jeremiah's contemporaries revealed clearly the three sources of authoritative teaching that they believed they had. One was the teaching from the priests, which was the Torah, the law. Secondly, from the wise men and women, which was the wisdom literature and the writings. And thirdly, the prophets, bringing a direct word from the Lord. They seem to be three distinct professional roles within Israel. And so what we see there, and indeed in the structure of the canon of the Old Testament, is that wisdom is distinct, both from Torah, the law, Genesis to Deuteronomy, and from the prophets, distinct but not incompatible, complementary to them. But what is this expression, a missional hermeneutic, that we're going to try to apply to these three books of the wisdom literature, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job? Basically, it means reading the Bible from the perspective of mission, the mission of God himself, God's purpose and intention, and whatever mission we believe we have in the world as God's people. It's a phrase, missional hermeneutics, that's come to describe a relatively new discipline in biblical studies, although I would say it's only relatively new in the academy. Uh, I would believe that Jesus himself was the first who, who actually exercised a missional hermeneutic of the scriptures. The actual word, the phrase, was probably first used by Jim Brownson in 1994 in a book in which the phrase came, but then it gained traction in the early 2000s with a group who were engaged in missional hermeneutics, as I was myself, even before I knew the term. Uh, but I met these folks at SBL and elsewhere, and in the end, for me, it led to the book The Mission of God, which is one of the books out there on the bookstall, The Mission of God, Unlocking the Bible's Grand Narrative. And then in 2008, uh, uh, George Hunsberger produced what he called Mapping Missional Hermeneutics. And so I've put together for you, and I'll try to go through it very quickly, what I've called the Hunsberger Quadrilateral. That is that he argued that there were four different ways that this phrase, missional hermeneutics, was being used. 
uh, and they all had validity, they were all part of the discussion. The first, in many ways the most obvious, was the missional direction of the story, that is, the Bible story. And this approach is most closely linked with myself and others because it is the argument of that book, The Mission of God, namely that it is the Bible as a whole, from creation to new creation, which renders to us, which gives us the record of God's mission through God's people in God's world for God's ultimate purpose, which is the redemption and reconciliation of all God's creation. And that's the narrative of Scripture, the structure of Scripture, a good creation spoiled by sin and then redeemed and reconciled by the blood of Christ, as Colossians says. And the Bible narrative in between, between the fall and the return of Christ, is the mission of God to get us from the one to the other. This is the record of God's mission. So a missional hermeneutic then, in that way, will strive to write, read any Bible text or book within that narrative framework, asking where does it fit? What does it contribute? How is it impacted by that narrative? Or in some way relate to it if it's actually not part of it. So that's the first. And then secondly comes the missional purpose of the writings. This was something which Daryl Gooder explored when he saw that the New Testament documents, he was writing about the New Testament, arose for the purpose of equipping and shaping these small communities of Christian believers for their witness to carry on the mission of God in the world. And my own work as an Old Testament scholar on Israel's law especially included the observation that that was given, the law was given to Israel in order to shape them to reflect the character of Yahweh God, to enable them to be a public, visible exemplar of what a redeemed people should look like. And I believe that the same shaping function can apply to other Old Testament documents. So in this sense, then, a missional hermeneutic asks the question of a text, how does this particular text equip or shape God's people for their mission in the world? The Bible or the Bible documents become not just a record of God's mission, but a product and a tool of God's mission. And then thirdly, according to Hansberger, there were those who were seeking a, a missional hermeneutics thinking about the missional locatedness of the readers. This was Michael Barham, that every generation of God's people read these texts in a context from a particular location in which they are called to exercise God's mission in the world. So a missional hermeneutic will explore the text to discern the shape and the demands of the mission of God in that particular located context. And then fourthly, there's the missional engagement with culture. This was again going back to Jim Brownson, who observed that the, the New Testament authors used the Old Testament scriptures to address the new situations that they were facing as the church expanded in its missionary work, but they used the Old Testament scriptures, as it were, through a gospel-shaped framework the gospel itself became the matrix through which they engaged the scriptures with culture so that the missional encounter with culture must take place through a scripturally shaped gospel matrix. So those are the four elements of Hunsberger's uh, quadrilateral, as I've just called it. That's just my term. Now, over these last number of years, uh, one of the things that I've done is to participate with the Missional Training Center which is based in Phoenix, Arizona, uh, led by Michael Goheen and Chris Gonzalez and others. And over a number of years, I was asked to come and to share with different cohorts of students there a missional reading 
of different books of the Old Testament. So we've looked at Exodus and Genesis, Deuteronomy, and various other ones over the years. And building on Hunsberger's work, I developed over time a series of six questions that I felt one could ask of any text or book to help to explore and emerge, as it were, a missional hermeneutic. Uh, and you can now see those six uh, questions. Uh, I call it the right hexagon, just to keep the geometric imagery right. And I've actually then produced them on that other handout in a slightly expanded form so that you can use that as we look at Ecclesiastes and Job tomorrow. So first of all, uh, we ask the question, where does this text or this book of the Bible fit within the grand narrative of Scripture, in some ways going back to that first of Hunsberger's four. Seeing the Bible as, to use the term of Bartholomew and Goheen in their book, the drama of Scripture, I don't know if you're familiar with that, but Michael Goheen, Craig Bartholomew wrote a book, The Drama of Scripture, and they say we can imagine the great narrative of the Bible from creation to new creation like a drama in a number of different acts as it goes through. Uh, and I've simply now set that out as seven acts, and you can see the little diagram there at the bottom of the page, simply symbols that can be used to draw this on the back of an envelope or on the back of a restaurant napkin, as I've done, sitting beside somebody and trying to explain what the Bible's all about, and you just draw these, and it, it gives you the whole story. Uh, and so you've got these seven acts, creation, act one, rebellion, we fall, we do everything wrong, Act three is basically the whole story of the Old Testament, uh, from the promise of Abraham right through to Malachi. Act four is the central act, the, the, the gospel, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Act five, the mission of the church from Pentecost through to the return of Christ. Act six, the, the rectification, the final day of judgment. And then act seven, the whole new heavens and the new earth, the new creation that we read about in Isaiah 65 and Revelation 21, 22. So we can ask of any book or text, where does it fit in that drama? Which act is it in? What comes before it? What is prepared for it? Where is it leading? If it's in the Old Testament, how does it point us towards the next bit of the story in Christ? If it's in the New Testament, how is it pointing forwards to his return? And then the second question, which is very closely related to that one, what does this reveal or this text reveal about the God of the Bible? because the mission of God is obviously driven by the biblical God. And so how do we understand in our missional reading of any text what it contributes to our understanding of this God whose ultimate purpose and mission is to bring about the redemption of all creation and blessing to all nations? What does this text say about the uniqueness, the universality of this God? Is that in the text about Yahweh, about Jesus? What does it tell us about his character, his purpose, his sovereignty, his will to be known, and his acts of redemption? Where is God in this text, and how do we learn of his missional intention? And then the third and fourth questions also go together, because when we think about the gospel, the gospel addresses our human condition. So what does this particular text or book reveal to us about our human condition? What elements are exposed or illustrated or addressed uh, that, under, under, that help us to understand mission. And this matters because the scope of the biblical gospel has to be big enough to address the radical problems that are caused by our sin. And the Bible has a very radical diagnosis of our sin. So as we look at a text, what do we see in it of the problem that mission needs to address? 
Which leads naturally then to the fourth question, what truths of the biblical gospel does this text or book affirm or illustrate or in some way impact? And by gospel, of course, we mean the news, the word good news. And good news as such is woven all through the Bible. It's not just when we get uh, to the cross and resurrection of Christ, although, of course, that's at the very heart of the biblical gospel. But there is good news all the way through that God, the God of the Bible, confronts evil all the time. He's confronting evil and sin in judgment, but also in redemption. And he is ultimately victorious again and again in his struggle with sin and evil, and supremely, of course, at the cross and resurrection of Christ. Yahweh God is, above all else, the saving God. Yahweh is salvation, as the Psalms say. So what elements, then, of that biblical good news on a big scale can we see in this book uh, in some ways, either reflecting on or anticipating in some way the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and the ultimate eschatological goal? And then the fifth question, relating now to our mission, how does this text or book describe and address God's people? When we go back to Genesis chapter 12, of course, there in God's calling to Abraham, God simultaneously declares his mission. God's mission is the blessing of all nations on earth, he says to Abraham. That's my intention. Through you, all nations will be blessed. And also, at the same time as declaring his mission, he creates the people who are going to be, as it were, the vehicle of that mission, the people of God. As yet, they were only in the loins of Abraham, but they would come, they would become Israel of the Old Testament, and then the people in the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. So the people of God in Old and New Testament are integral to the mission of God. So we can ask of any text, what does this text tell us about the people of God, their calling, their identity, their distinctiveness, their faith or lack of, their failings, their mission, their ethics, uh, and so on. How does the people of God emerge in this text? And how did this text then function to shape them for their responsibility, and how does it continue to do that today? And then finally, the sixth question that we would ask is, what elements of universality of the mission of God are apparent in this text? What does this text show, if anything, about God's involvement with the nations? And again, you look in the Old Testament, and they're always kind of there, even though the main focus is obviously on Israel. There's this backdrop of nations, whether it's uh, Egypt or the Canaanites or the Babylonians or whatever, there's this sense that the God of Israel is always operating on an international stage. Where does that appear in this text? How does it show anything about God's love, care, intention for all creation? There's this universal dimension of the God of the Bible and God's purposes going right back to Abraham and right on through the Lord Jesus and the mission of the church, the teaching of Paul, the revelation, and so on. So what does this text have to say which exposes that universal dimension of God? Now, obviously, as we move from that sort of background of what a missional hermeneutic could mean to a particular book, uh, one has to say, obviously, that there's not always going to be clear, immediate, obvious, contentful answers to those six questions in every text or book that you read. Uh, there might be more in some than in others. But just having these questions in mind I find anyway, can stimulate some quite interesting missiological reflections on any particular text or book that we're looking at. And so that's what I thought then I would try to do in these parchment lectures over these couple of days 
uh, on these books of wisdom. And that brings us then to a missional reading of Proverbs and asking our first question, what does this book do or where does it fit within the grand narrative of Scripture? And there you can see uh, those seven acts. Now, very obviously, the wisdom literature emerges within Act 3. That's to say, Proverbs and the other book, they presuppose the God of Israel. Proverbs more than either of the other two, which Proverbs repeatedly speaks about Yahweh, the God of Israel, speaks about the fear of the Lord, the fear of Yahweh being the beginning of wisdom. And that's language, Yahweh, the fear of the Lord. Those are concepts and ethos and theological terms which resonate with the covenant faith of Israel of the Old Testament. So it emerges within Act 3, but wisdom literature is very much more focused on and based on Acts 1 and 2, that is, God's created order in creation and human fallenness, weakness, and folly emerging from Act 2. And in that respect, wisdom literature is distinct from the law and the prophets, because as you're, I'm sure, aware, the law, the Torah, and the prophets build repeatedly on the story of redemption, election, redemption, exodus, conquest, gift of land, and so on. That's the motivation that you find. For example, if you look at the issue of uh, why should we care for the poor in the Torah or in the prophets, they will tell you again and again, because God is the God who rescued you out of Egypt, and therefore you should care for the poor in your own land. He did this for you in the redemption of Egypt. You should do it for others. They build their ethics on the narrative of redemption. Whereas when you get to uh, the book of Proverbs, you find that they repeatedly do the same thing. They make the same point, we should care for the poor, but they base it on the theology of creation. So you'll see there uh, in the, the text, creational motivation at the very bottom line. I just quote one of these verses. I've tried to, often to give a lot of verses, but I only usually just quote one. But Proverbs 14, verse 31, whoever oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker, but whoever is kind to the needy honors God. That's a creation basis for social ethics, and that's repeated in a number of places in Proverbs. So it bases its theology on Acts 1 and 2, but remember, Acts 1 and 2 are vital parts of the whole grand narrative of Scripture. The Bible doesn't begin with Exodus begins with Genesis, and wisdom literature takes us back to the very beginning of the story, which is essential for understanding the rest of the story and indeed the ultimate destination of the story, which is a new creation. So the wisdom foundation then, this createdness and fallenness, is the platform or the stage on which the rest of the drama of the mission of God and the whole Bible takes place. We live in a good creation which has been spoiled by sin, which is populated by people who are inclined towards folly and wickedness, but a good creation within which God calls us to a better choice and to a safer destiny by listening to God's own voice. And the book of Proverbs seems broadly optimistic that such practical, obedient, wise fear of the Lord can indeed lead to a more blessed and flourishing life. Ecclesiastes and Job will puncture that optimism a bit with their relentless questions and pretty brutal experience. 
But even as they do that, it only serves to point us forward to the answer to that problem, which the rest of the redemptive story will ultimately provide in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, crucified and risen. And we see that especially when we're looking at Ecclesiastes and Proverbs later. So that's the first. Second, then, what about the God of the Bible in the book of Proverbs? More than 100 of the 915 verses in Proverbs, that is more than 10% of the book, refer to God by name and almost exclusively by the name Yahweh. So the book of Proverbs is profoundly theological. It's not just a book of good advice for successful living, which you get in quite a lot of other ancient Near Eastern wisdom texts, of which there are quite a number, and I'll refer to some of them later on. In other words, God is everywhere present, directly or in the very near background. And this, I think, makes an immediate, very simple and rather obvious point, but I think it's a, a missiologically important point, that if this book does actually contain good advice for successful living, in other words, how to live a happy and good life, then its fundamental assertion of the book as a whole is that there is no way to achieve or to enjoy such a life without a right relationship with the living God of Israel. And surely there is gospel truth, or at least a prior evangelistic assumption that's built into that. For there is no other God. And that's another thing we need to get clear, of course, that Israel's wisdom literature stands on the same monotheistic foundation as all the rest of the Old Testament, and especially the book of Deuteronomy. And that's the major distinguishing feature of the biblical Old Testament wisdom literature and the widespread ancient Near Eastern wisdom with which Israel shared quite a lot of common culture. In the other ancient Near Eastern wisdom, in Babylon and Egypt especially, God or the gods are fairly generic. They are named, but generally speaking, you could fill in the blank with whatever god you choose uh, in the advice that's being given. And in any case, the gods in ancient Near Eastern wisdom are not really part of the solution to life's challenges. Actually, most of the time, they're more of a problem in it. But for Israel, Yahweh alone is God, and every dimension of life on this planet must be lived in relation to him. So we can outline, and I've, I've put them there on your sheet, some of the characteristics of this God, which I think are not just theologically important, but actually significant for a mission theology. The most obvious is that Yahweh alone is the creator by his wisdom of the world itself. Chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, by wisdom... The Lord, Yahweh, laid the earth's foundations, and by understanding, he set the heavens in place. So that he is the creator of the earth and the heavens and of all mankind. And this emphasis on Yahweh as the creator of all human humankind, regardless of their social or economic status, is a marked feature of some of the later texts. And I put some of them there, I think, haven't I? Yes, uh, under, uh, well, actually, in the previous page under the distinctiveness, the creation, motivation, that list of texts that are there. Uh, in relation to this ethic on behalf of the poor, it's precisely because whether you're rich or poor or whatever you are, Yahweh is the maker of all human beings. And therefore, whatever you do to anybody, 
whatever their status, you are doing to their creator, and you need to think about that before you do it. So those who have a missional concern for social economic action on, for the poor, issues of poverty and oppression and injustice and so on, as part of their understanding of Christian mission, a holistic, integral understanding of mission, as we come to call it, will find a strong support in Proverbs for the portrayal of the God whom we meet there. This is the God who is creator and therefore concern for all human life in all its dimensions. Secondly, this God is sovereign. Now, in the ancient Near East, they had this concept of order, cosmic order different words for it, ma'at in, in Egyptian and so on. And that was very predominant. Even the gods were subject to this great cosmic concept of order. But for Israel, it is Yahweh himself who is the guarantor of this cosmic moral order of the universe. He's not only its creator, but he's also its supreme governor. Nothing can thwart Yahweh's plans and purposes. Uh, and so we read in chapter 21, verse 30, there is no wisdom, no insight, no plan that can, can, that can succeed against the Lord. And you'll find the other references there in that same little column under B, sovereign, which all speak about how this sense of Yahweh has his plans and they will mysteriously interact with human plans. Human beings make their plans and their choices and Yahweh God will either confirm them or overrule them. He will do what he will do, even though our planning has to be woven into it in some sense. And the fact that Proverbs does speak quite often about this God who has plans does connect, even if only indirectly, with the wider biblical theme of the sovereign redemptive purpose of God. Proverbs doesn't spell it out, on any grand scale about God's redemptive intention, but the book does reveal to us a purposeful God whose plans, even if they're beyond human understanding, will ultimately be fulfilled. And that surely the sense of the sovereignty of God is a core foundation for Christian mission, as Jesus himself made very clear in the opening words of the Great Commission. If you remember at the end of Matthew's gospel, he didn't begin with a command, go and make disciples of all nations, he began with an affirmation. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He begins with the sovereign lordship of Christ, which in many ways is a Christological answer to the sovereignty of Yahweh in Proverbs, and he makes that the foundation of all Christian mission. This certainty that God's purposes will be fulfilled is a crucial reassurance for missional perseverance and for ultimate hope. So Proverbs reminds us about the certainty of God's plan, and we need that. Then thirdly, this God of, the, uh, of Proverbs is benevolent. God in the book of Proverbs longs for human flourishing. Now, in Proverbs, there are various voices. One is the voice of the wise father speaking to the son. Another voice is the voice of lady wisdom, personified as, as a female, as a woman. And the Father and Lady Wisdom, in a sense, both represent God. They're both, in a sense, the personification of God himself speaking. And repeatedly, they clearly seek the good of those who listen to them, both present good and future good, in the sense that the destiny 
of those who will heed their voice or not, as the case may be, is either life or death. And so we have there in uh, chapter 8, verses 35, 36, uh, Lady Wisdom says, speaking for God, those who find me find life and receive favor from the Lord, but those who fail to me, fail to find me, harm themselves. All who hate me love death. So this is a life and death issue uh, that is at stake. And the obvious desire of the Father and wisdom is that we should choose life and blessing. Now, I've just used that word blessing, and as I'm sure you know, in the Old Testament, that has a very broad and rich content. And in the book of Proverbs, uh, a blessed life stretches from the material realm, it includes food, oil and wine, productive work, wealth, bodily health, and so on. Relational blessing, joy in sex and marriage, happy parent-child relationships, beneficial friendships, and societal harmony, right on through to the spiritual dimensions of blessing, of knowing and loving God, and receiving God's protection and care and approval. All rich, broad dimensions of blessing, material, physical, relational, spiritual. And the route to all of those blessings, according to Proverbs, is wisdom. Now, that would have been affirmed also by the ancient Near Eastern wisdom literature. That is, they would say that this general human desire, we all long for happiness and success and flourishing in life. It's a universal human desire. And they would say it's to be found in following the guidance of wisdom in whatever cultural form that then took in the ancient Near East. But what the Old Testament wisdom insists upon repeatedly is that it is the fear of the Lord that is the beginning, the first principle of the way towards that blessing that comes from wisdom. In other words, a right relationship with Yahweh, a relationship which is characterized as the fear of the Lord, which means respect, trust, love, loyalty, obedience, all directed towards this one God. You don't have to worry about lots of other gods. This one single creator God, that is the secure foundation for any and all of those blessings. Now, again, coming to Christian mission, there are many motivations, as we all know, for Christian mission. But one of them, surely, at least, the very least, is that we seek the good of our fellow human beings. And we do so holistically. That is, that we care about people's physical and economic and educational and social and environmental and, of course, spiritual needs and brokenness in all kinds of ways. We care for people to whom God sends us to serve as God sent Jesus into the world. And so like God himself in Proverbs, we also seek human flourishing across a very wide spectrum of criteria. And such comprehensive, holistic, integral missional motivation and intention and action seem to me to be fully in line with the will and desire of God for human life that we see revealed in the book of Proverbs. Moving on, number four, Yahweh is the auditor of all human life. This is a frequent affirmation, not just in Proverbs, but throughout the Old Testament, especially in somewhere like Psalm 33, uh, that Yahweh is the God who sees and knows and hears what's going on. 
Uh, that's said about him right there at the beginning of the book of Exodus, you remember. The Israelites are crying out in slavery, and we read that four words, Yahweh sees, hears, knows, and is concerned for them and remembers. And so similarly, in uh, Proverbs chapter 15, verse 3, we read that the eyes of the Lord are everywhere, keeping watch on the wicked and the good. And that foundation, that fact about Yahweh, that he is the auditor of everything that happens, is what leads to the next point, number five, which is that he is therefore judge. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right, asks Abraham in Genesis 18:25, which is a rhetorical question that obviously expects the answer, well, yes, of course he will, because he's a judge of all the earth and he's perfectly righteous and just and holy, so of course he's going to do what is right. Proverbs will say that wholeheartedly. Ecclesiastes will agree eventually, but only after much questioning and struggle and wondering if it will actually be true. And Job, Job will accept that, yes, that the Lord is the judge and he will do what is right. He will accept it as an ultimate truth, even if his present inexplicable personal experiences seem to deny it. Now, as I said earlier, ancient Near Eastern wisdom literature does have this dominating concept of cosmic order. And one feature of that cosmic order is that actions have consequences. But this, this action consequence thing is not really something to do with the gods. In some ways, it's almost they submit to it as well. It's much more automatic, almost like a kind of karmic principle. This is just the way things are. Actions like that will have consequences like this. Now, in the book of Proverbs, that element of actions have consequences is also there. And sometimes it's, it's expressed in a very general, automatic kind of a way. Do this and that's what will happen. But much more often, the consequences of our actions, for good or for ill, for the righteous or the wicked, are the direct personal actions of Yahweh himself. There is a, a retributive principle, which is sometimes expressed impersonally, almost mechanically, but is actually rooted in the personal justice of God himself, the God who is righteous. In other words, Yahweh is active in the process of justice being done. It is God who will put things right. And so there in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 33, just as one example of this, the Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the home of the righteous. He mocks proud mockers, but he shows favor to the humble and oppressed. This, these things don't just happen by accident. God is in it, even in the individual case. Now, again, from a missional point of view, this conviction of Proverbs that wickedness has deadly consequences because Yahweh himself will see to it, namely, he will see to it that the wicked do not go unpunished. That's there in Proverbs chapter 11, verse 21. Be sure of this, the wicked will not go unpunished, but those who are righteous will go free. Very similar to what Numbers said, you remember, be sure your sin will find you out. Uh, wickedness will ultimately meet the judgment and the wrath of God. And that surely, from a missional point of view, is both a warning and an encouragement. It obviously, it, it reinforces the evangelist's warning, which was sounded by John the Baptist and by Jesus and by Paul and the apostles, namely to flee from the wrath to come in repentance. 
because God will undoubtedly judge the wicked according to their deeds. Uh, and that's something that's built into the whole biblical theology right through. But this affirmation that God will ultimately deal with evil and wickedness is also an encouragement because it's an integral part of the gospel. It is good news, isn't it, that evil and wickedness will not have the last word in God's universe, that ultimately there will not be impunity forever. Proverbs' warnings about God's judgment, of course, they don't specify a time scale as to when God will do these things that are said to the wicked. Not so much a time scale, only a certainty. But it is a certainty which is a matter of rejoicing for all creation. Psalm 96, Psalm 98 calls on the whole of creation to rejoice. Why? Because God is coming, and he's coming to judge the earth, to put things right. It will be the prophets and the apostles who will then go on to articulate this sense of a final reckoning, a day of the Lord, a day of judgment, when all wrongs will be dealt with and God will put all things right, which in terms of our biblical drama is Act 6, before he ultimately makes all things new in Act 7. So that's the sixth. And finally, under this section uh, about God, is that this, is, that this God is personal. This is another feature uh, of Israel's wisdom literature, which distinguishes it from the ancient Near Eastern wisdom texts, which is that there's this directly personal relationship with God, which shines through repeatedly. Yes, of course, Yahweh is the creator of the universe. He's the sovereign governor of all events. He is the auditor and judge of all mankind, but he is also personally involved in the lives of those who walk in the ways of wisdom godliness and righteousness. It's not just that God blesses the righteous in some sort of arm's length way, just dropping blessings on them from heaven. The language of Proverbs is profoundly relational and mostly individual, even if that individual singular of the righteous one is collective or generic in its sense. It does carry the flavor of God's involvement with the personal lives of the people who are walking in his ways. So, and again, I'll not take time to quote the text, but the Lord himself, Yahweh himself, protects the righteous and their families. He is their guardian, their refuge, their shield, like in the Psalms. He helps them to succeed and to prosper. He offers them friendship, confidence, approval, love, discipline, like a father. And so we have this wonderful double truth of biblical monotheism that this unique supreme deity of the whole universe knows and cares about every single individual person. To quote uh, Leonard Bostrom uh, on this, he says, paradoxically, Yahweh is at once the most transcendent God of the ancient Near East and the most human in his love and personality. So, to conclude this full section, and I'm conscious of the time, from a missional point of view, this massive span and scope of Proverbs' conception of Yahweh as God seems to me functions powerfully in the kind of communication that ought to characterize our sharing of the gospel in our missional efforts. This, these affirmations that this God of the Bible is the sole creator of all that exists, the sovereign governor of all that takes place, but at the same time is personally aware of any in every individual, seeks their welfare, 
while also evaluating and responding to their moral choices and actions, these are the affirmations, aren't they, that provide a robust platform on which the Bible's story of God's plan and salvation is worked out. And they prepare us for this equally vast scope of God's redemptive achievement that we read about elsewhere in the Bible. Especially in the New Testament, it is clear that the saving work of Christ through his cross and resurrection has accomplished the reconciliation of all creation, it's cosmic, and also the invitation is open to every individual to enter into the peace and the joy and the hope of having a personal righteous relationship with this God through faith in Christ. This God of Proverbs is known to us in Christ as the God of our salvation. So that's the story and the God. Let's move on to the human condition, uh, number three. And I hope you're following through on the, on, the, on the handout. It's often said, and justifiably said, that Proverbs is broadly an optimistic book uh, with its blessings and the rewards of life that are lived with godly wisdom and the fruit of righteousness. But it must also be said uh, that the book is thoroughly aware of the dark side of human existence. And let me just mention four things in this section. First of all, that sin is universal. Not a single human being is exempt. Proverbs is just as emphatic as somewhere like Romans 3.23 or 1 John 1.8 in affirming the universality of sin. Who can say, we read in chapter 20, verse 9, who can say that I've kept my heart pure, that I'm clean and without sin? Answer, of course, nobody. It's actually somewhat ironic, I think, but maybe significant, that the very first use of the vocabulary of wisdom occurs in the context of Act 2 of the Bible drama. That is, back there in Genesis 3, the very moment of humanity's fall into sin and rebellion in Genesis 3. Because you recall, won't you, that as the woman contemplated the tree of the knowledge of good and evil after the serpent's cunning question and lies, she saw that it was, quote, desirable for gaining wisdom or insight, Genesis 3, verse 6. And that in itself is a good thing. That's actually commended as one of a summary of the list of objectives of the whole book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 3 uses exactly the same verb, haskil, to have insight, to have wisdom. The trouble is, of course, that the woman is seeking such wisdom now in a direction and by a means that God had prohibited. That is, by distrusting God's goodness and disobeying God's instruction. And that sinful disobedience turns wisdom that she wants into folly, a tragic reversal, which I think the Apostle Paul portrays, possibly even with this same story and its echoes in Proverbs in mind, Paul portrays as the universal human condition in Romans 1.22. He says about us as a whole human race, although they claim to be wise, very much the ambition of Proverbs, they became fools. And so our relationship with God then governs how we think in our minds and how we behave. And our condition is that having rejected the authority of our God, our minds are darkened and our behavior is sinful. And that's where we have to start, isn't it, when we're thinking about the gospel itself. Secondly, folly and wickedness are immensely damaging. You just scan through Proverbs and pull out all the verses that talk about the fool or the wicked uh, or the lazy person or whatever it is, and they're all there. And the outcomes of their behaviors is very long indeed and pretty horrible. Let me just read very quickly. Gossip, 
poisons friendships. Lies and deceit destroy almost every aspect of life. Mockery devalues everything good. Laziness is self-damaging. Violence swallows up the vulnerable. Sexual promiscuity ruins lives. Parental failure or filial disobedience produce whole generational dysfunction and grief. Hatred causes dissension and conflict. Oppression crushes the poor. Injustice in government or corruption in the courts cause great suffering. Dishonest business stinks to God. Drunkenness leads to violence and self-harm. Quarrelsome ruins, someness ruins friendships and marriages. And that's just some of the things that they talk about. So Proverbs clearly has this catalog of the effects of sin and folly in human life, which maps very well on what we also find in the book of Psalms and in the prophets, so it's coherent. And thirdly, that the end of the road for the human condition is ultimately death. Proverbs reflects, I think probably intentionally, reflects on Genesis 3 in perceiving that the only ultimate destination of the pathway of sinful folly and persistently chosen wickedness is in the end death. So that even though Adam and Eve did not physically die on the day they ate the forbidden fruit, nevertheless, theologically, Paul can affirm that sin entered into the world through one man and death through sin, and therefore death came to all people because all have sinned. And likewise, Proverbs personifies all forms of deliberate sin and temptation, which are, as it were, embodied in lady folly, the opposite woman to lady wisdom, and repeatedly affirms that all those who end up in her house, we read in chapter 9, verse 18, all her guests are in the depths of the grave. That's where you'll go. So Proverbs ends that has then these three perspectives on its diagnosis of sin, which I think are missiologically very significant. First, that sin is fundamentally rejection of God. It's not merely a horizontal aberration in human life. Secondly, that sin is massively damaging to human life individually and in the social realm and in economics, politics, and environmental issues. Sin is damaging. And thirdly, that sin is inescapably fatal. It's the ultimate terminal illness, for the wages of sin is death. And all of these three, it seems to me, need to be integral dimensions of biblically faithful evangelism and biblically motivated social engagement in our mission. But fourthly, and interestingly, is there any possibility of change? And I'm conscious that time is beginning to run out, and we may have to leave part of, of the rest of it till we're finished, till perhaps the second lecture. The question arises, as we, before we move on to the biblical gospel, as to whether Proverbs sees any redemptive possibility for those who it so persistently and ruthlessly pillories as the wicked, the scoffer, the mocker, the fool, can they ever change? Can they avoid the bleak consequences of their behavior? Is there any escape from that deadly destiny? And I think the answer that Proverbs gives seems to me to be ambivalent, but ambivalent in a way that the rest of the Bible would endorse. On the one hand, there is what John Goldingay rather nicely calls the strange fact of stupidity. It to me is a great way of putting it. In other words, there is something mysterious and inexplicable about how incorrigible some people simply are. That no matter how much you warn them, rebuke them, instruct them, punish them, no matter if you flog them, etc., etc., somehow they never learn or change. 
Uh, there's this polar opposite of the fear of the Lord, where it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. And so in chapter 1 uh, of Proverbs, verses 24 to 32, there's a very bleak assessment of this incorrigible folly and complacency. And just listen to these words as I read them, and just think about our world and some of our political leaders, if I may be so blunt. And I'm talking not just about here, but in, in the West in general, certainly my own country. Wisdom says, since you refuse to listen when I call and no one pays attention when I stretch out my hand, since you disregard all my advice and do not accept my rebuke, I in turn will laugh when disaster strikes you. I will mock when calamity overtakes you like a storm, like a whirlwind. Then they will call to me. I not answer. They look for me, but will not find me. Since they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, since they would not accept my advice and spurned my rebuke, they will eat the fruit of their ways and be filled with the fruit of their schemes. For the waywardness of the simple will kill them, and the complacency of fools will destroy them. Isn't that a chilling word? A frightening resonance, I think, in today's world, where brazen folly gets elevated sometimes to government policy and propaganda. And Proverbs does seem here to perceive a dimension of human sinfulness that the Apostle Paul will also affirm, that it is beyond our own will to deal with. There is a stubborn willfulness about our wickedness that flies in the face of all wisdom, divine or human. And yet, and yet, on the other hand, the appeal keeps going out loud and clear for people to do what we're being told they cannot or will not do, and that is to change their ways and to heed the warning of wisdom speaking for God himself. That passage I've just quoted actually starts with just such an appeal for repentance. Out in the open, wisdom calls aloud, raises her voice in the public square. She cries out at the city gate, how long will you who are simple love your simple ways? How long will mockers delight in mockery and fools hate knowledge? Repent, she says, at my rebuke, and then I will pour out my thoughts to you and make known to you my teachings. And that same appeal goes out in Proverbs 8 and 9 very strongly. Something very similar here to what we find in Deuteronomy, which is, on the one hand, ruthlessly negative about people's ability to walk in God's ways. Deuteronomy actually anticipates that the people will go on being stubborn rebels even into the future and the future generations. And yet the same book urgently appeals to Israel to love and obey God as the only pathway to blessing. Choose life, says Moses, in that great evangelistic climax of Deuteronomy 30 which leads, therefore, to the biblical gospel. Choose life, because this is surely good news, isn't it? That for Proverbs, like Moses, like the psalmist, even the prophets, they believe that we can do that, that we can choose life, that the very fact that the choice is there to be made at all is good news, that we're not fated, doomed, or programmed in one direction only. We can turn turn away from evil, shun evildoers, turn towards God and his wisdom where life is to be found. So Proverbs 13 verse 14, the teaching of the wise is a fountain of life, turning a person from the snares of death. Proverbs 3:18, wisdom is a tree of life to those who take hold of her, those who hold her fast will be blessed. That's Eden language, isn't it? Garden of Eden, a tree of life. 
John Goldinger again says, the fact that human sin cuts us off from the tree of life doesn't mean that God wants us just to surrender ourselves to death. Wisdom is the way to life through the fear of the Lord. We're back again to that importance of the fear of the Lord and all its implications. The only gateway to life in all its fullness, which is Proverbs and the rest of the Bible, is through a right relationship with God, which therefore, of course, leads us and points us towards the ultimate embodiment of wisdom in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And you get all those theological and intertextual links between lady wisdom in Proverbs and Christ in the New Testament. As Craig Bartholomew puts it, lady wisdom becomes incarnate of Jesus of Nazareth. Daniel Block, Walter Mobley, they equate the fear of the Lord with the language of faith in Christ in the New Testament. Odiah outlines the wisdom Christology in John 1, Hebrews 1, Colossians 1, and so on. So when Paul prays for his churches to grow in wisdom, knowledge, understanding, and insight, Paul is using the vocabulary of Proverbs, but it's rooted now in what it means to be in Christ and growing to maturity in him. So then, Proverbs doesn't preach the gospel in the way that we construe it, but it does provide a foundation, a vocabulary, a promise, and a summons, which ultimately leads us to Christ, who has come that we may have abundant life. And so there is hope for the repentant sinner. Proverbs 10, 12, love covers all wrongs. If that's the power of human love, then what might God's love accomplish? Proverbs 16, verse 6, through love and faithfulness, sin is atoned for. Remarkable word there in Proverbs. Through the fear of the Lord, evil is avoided. And Van Leeuwen in his commentary believes that that is an echo of Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, uh, where those are the words describing the faithfulness, the love of God himself is what is atoning for sin, which ultimately points us towards Christ. If Yahweh is the forgiving God, then there's hope. And so one verse in Proverbs, Proverbs 28, verse 13, whoever conceals their sins does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. And here at last, even if only once, we hear a voice that echoes the truth of Psalm 32 and signs a gospel promise that confession of sin will meet the mercy of God. I think that's where I need to stop because it's come to 12 o'clock, but you can read the rest of the uh, outline there, and then I might just sort of finish that off this afternoon before I move into Ecclesiastes. Let's see. Thank you. <laughs>